0: In 1872, the United States Supreme Court denied Mrs. Myra Bradwell, who had apprenticed, passed the bar exam, and had support from legal professionals, the right to practice law. Their decision quoted the Supreme Court of Illinois' opinion that allowing women to be attorneys was never contemplated. A lot has changed in the legal profession since 1872, but there is always room for improvement. From the Florida Bar's Henry Latimer Center for Professionalism, this is Never Contemplated. Welcome to this edition of Never Contemplated. I'm your host, Heddle Desai. On our last episode, we touched on the adoption of the pro bono policy for Florida Bar members. This year, the Supreme Court awarded the Chief Justice's Volunteer Bar Association Award to the Cuban American Bar Association for its pro bono work. The Cuban immigration story in Florida starts in the late 1960s and 70s, when Cubans seeking refuge from Fidel Castro's newly imposed dictatorship fled to the US, usually to Florida. This wave of immigrants was made up of professionals in different fields, including an influx of lawyers. In 1973, the Florida Supreme Court issued an order calling on the state's law schools to develop specialized courses for these Cuban barristers so they could take the Florida Bar Examination and become licensed to practice law in the state. The University of Florida College of Law stepped up to the task and created the Cuban American Lawyers Program. Our guest today has her own inspiring Cuban American story that we'll hear Judge Marcia Morales Howard serves as a U.S. District Court Judge in the Florida Middle District, where she is known for holding ceremonies to administer the naturalization oath to new U.S. citizens on the football field of Jacksonville Jaguars during a halftime show. Judge Howard's passion for providing dignity and respect to new immigrants and her work in demystifying the judicial system for the public has earned her the 2020 Hoover Judicial Professionalism Award. The award recognizes a judge who exemplifies character and service as a jurist and public servant. Judge Morales Howard grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, was sworn in as a United States magistrate judge in 2003 and appointed as a United States district judge in 2007. Welcome, Judge Howard, and thank you for being here with us today. Last time that we spoke, you were starting off with some symptoms of COVID-19, and it looks like you're better today. How are you feeling? Definitely feeling better. Uh, we, we have a
1: child who's home after graduating from college. And of course, she brought COVID into the household.
0: So we, we quarantined together, the three of us. Oh, well, at least you're together. It's always good to blame the child <laughs> for these kind of things. You and your family have an incredible story uh, that many immigrants and lawyers share. And I want to just start at the beginning for that. Where's your family from? From Cuba. My
1: parents came to the United States in 1960 when Castro changed everything at, in their homeland.
0: The traditional story is that most uh, immigrants at that time from Cuba landed somewhere in South Florida, but your parents did not take that path, did they? No,
1: no, they definitely took the non-traditional path. They went from sunny Cuba up to Buffalo, New York, um, and they they started in Buffalo uh, because my father had gone to college in the United States and he'd studied to be a civil engineer in New York. And he thought he would be able to find a job up there. And and that's what they did. And they went from Buffalo to Connecticut. And then they did make their way south. They got as far as West Palm Beach. Uh, And then the company that my father was working for was going to to send him to Arizona. Uh, And at that point, his parents had settled in Jacksonville, Florida. And my grandfather said, no, no, don't, don't go to Arizona come here with us. And so my mother and father, sister and brother moved into my grandparents' house with my grandparents and one uncle and then the other uncle and his wife and daughter. It was cozy for a while.
0: And uh, what was it like growing up in a large extended family like that?
1: Well, by the time... I came around or, or was old enough to know what was going on. We we had moved to our own house, but but we're very close. All all of us that we all lived very close to one another and, and I think it was a bit of the, the typical Cuban family that we, we saw each other a lot and, and did a lot of family things together.
0: And then you grew up in Jacksonville, is that correct?
1: I did. I was born and raised here in Jacksonville and and with the exception of going to Fort Myers when I first became a district judge. And for my education, I've been here my whole life.
0: Well, let's talk about your education. You uh, ended up going to Vanderbilt University for your undergraduate degree. What led you to Nashville and what did you do up there?
1: Um, My parents didn't really know a a lot about American colleges. Uh, And so I, I happened to have the opportunity to go on a college trip where I toured a number of schools and I really fell in love with the Vanderbilt campus. When I started on the tour, I thought there were other schools that I was going to like, and I didn't. Uh, and so I came home and told my parents I wanted to apply to Vanderbilt, and they'd never heard of Vanderbilt. And Nashville, Tennessee, did not sound to them like someplace they would want to send their child. But I had a guidance counselor who said to them, it's a good school, let her try. Uh, and I did, I applied early decision and that was it. And I loved it. Vanderbilt was absolutely a great opportunity for me. And, and Nashville is a great city.
0: And what was your major?
1: Oh, that was not the greatest decision I made. I, I decided when I was about 13 years old that I wanted to be a lawyer, but nobody in my family had ever been a lawyer and nobody took me seriously. And so when I went to Vanderbilt, my father told me to major in something sensible, something I could use So I majored in economics uh, because I thought I could do something with an economics degree. I have no idea what I thought I was going to do with an economics degree, and I hated economics. So my grade in my major was lower than my grade outside my major, where I took political science classes and things that really interested me. So it was was not a good decision, but I survived
0: it. Ironically, I also was an economics major. (laughs) I actually enjoyed it. but we both ended up as lawyers in Florida. So you left Nashville, you ended up going to law school. And it sounds like you already knew that you were going to go to law school. How did you end up in Gainesville? I
1: grew up in, in Jacksonville and loved Jacksonville. And I had, other than Jacksonville, I'd spent a lot of time in South Florida with my with my cousins on my uh, mother's side of the family that ended up there. And so I knew that I wanted to live in Florida. And so I I chose to go to the University of Florida because I thought I would have the best opportunities and make that make the types of connections that you share throughout your career uh, and so i I picked u f because I thought it was the best law school in florida and and I enjoyed u f it was it was a good opportunity for me, although going to Florida after Vanderbilt was a little bit of a shock because it was so much bigger. And so it took some adjusting for me, not having been in, in big classes and on a, a campus of that size.
0: Well, your family probably had some adjustments as well, going from, as you said, a uh, culture shock, but maybe a, a climate shock from Cuba to New York and then back to Florida. What was it like after you graduated, uh, starting practice in your hometown?
1: My second summer, I, my first summer of law school, I clerked at a firm in Jacksonville and I had a great experience. And after that first summer, they offered me a permanent position after I graduated. And so that the, ne- the second summer, I thought I had nothing to gain and everything to lose by going back there because I already had the offer. So I went to DC and had a great experience with a really big firm up in DC. And then I had to make a decision of whether to go with the big firm in DC or whether to come back to Jacksonville. And because I had a great experience with the firm uh, up in DC and there were a lot of opportunities up there that I wouldn't have in Jacksonville. But I ended up thinking about what I really wanted out of my life globally. And I knew that I wanted to practice law and, and I wanted a real career. I also wanted to have a family and I looking around the firm and, and what life was like at that time, I made the decision that I was, had a better chance of having a work family balance of being able to be an engaged mother and an engaged lawyer uh, and a successful practice in Jacksonville. And that was sort of the decision point that made me decide, yeah, I want to go ahead and go back to Jacksonville because that's where I want to raise my family.
0: And so you moved back to Jacksonville and after, uh, and ended up working in private practice and eventually you were appointed to be the magistrate there in the middle district in Jacksonville. What made you apply for the magistrate position? Uh,
1: Well, I started out doing insurance defense and then slowly in state court. And I slowly morphed my practice to doing employment law, which, which at the time in particular was almost exclusively in federal court. I think it's more balanced now that that that's in state and federal. Uh, But I really enjoyed the experience in federal court and, I had a mentor um, named Harvey Schlesinger who was a magistrate judge in the Jacksonville decision for a long time. And then later a district judge. And judge Schlesinger was the one that encouraged me to apply to be a magistrate judge. Um, He, uh, for whatever reason he thought that would be a good move for me. And um, I know he, he just, he encouraged me and, I I thought that the idea of being a judge would let me do all of the things that I loved most about the law, and um, and so I decided to give it a shot. I was I was as surprised as anybody when I actually got picked.
0: And you did get picked. Uh, did it end up being all of the things that you loved? What kind of things does a, magist- a federal magistrate get to do?
1: Uh, well it's really the, whether it's a magistrate judge or a district judge as I am now, what, what I really love about the law is, has always been, and I admit I'm a huge nerd. Um, It's, I loved the research and the trying to find the answer you know, pulling the different threads of cases together and trying to find that common theme, that, that path through the middle that actually gets you to the right answer and, and, as a judge, that's, that's what you not only get to do, that's what you're supposed to do, but you, you have the ability to do that without the constraints of advocacy. You know, as, as a lawyer, I was given a, a puzzle or a problem, but I, I was supposed to find a particular answer. Um, and sometimes I didn't like the answer that I was supposed to be trying to find, or I didn't, it didn't feel like the right answer. And as a judge, our job is to find the answer that the law says. It's not, it's not what I like. It's not what the client likes. It's not what anybody likes. It's, it's what the right answer is supposed to be. And that's what I loved about the practice of law. And it's the most rewarding part of being a judge. It's also the absolute hardest part about being a judge because you have the, the, the responsibility to not get it wrong.
0: Well, um, let's talk about your appointment to the district judge position. You said earlier that you you enjoyed your political science classes, you worked in D.C., and you had a very unusual, I would say, political posturing uh, situation where you were appointed, uh, the president was one party, um, and then your confirmation process went through, and then the Senate changed hands. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, sure. So I was
1: when I was nominated by President Bush, the Senate was in re- the Republican Party was in the majority. And so as you go through the confirmation process, you have to fill out a Senate questionnaire, which is, oh, my goodness, 50 pages or so of questions and answers that you have to g- give them about your background and your practice and anything you can imagine they ask. Um, and you submit that. And I went through the process. I had my Senate judiciary hearing. I was voted out onto the Senate floor and was awaiting a confirmation hearing, but there was a dispute with between one senator and another nominee that caused that senator to put a hold on that nominee. In response, that nominee's home state senator put a hold on everyone else. So none of us got a Senate vote, which means all of our nominations failed, and we had to be Um, reappointed if the the president chose to reappoint. Uh, Fortunately for me, he did. But the Senate at that point had changed hands. And so there was no, you don't know at that point whether you're going to have to start the process all over again. You did have to fill out a new Senate questionnaire, but they didn't require me to have another Senate judiciary hearing. Instead, they simply voted me out onto the Senate floor, which was very kind of them. Um, And and I appreciated that. Although my my family might have might have enjoyed going up for another hearing. The first hearing was was interesting.
0: Well, it sounds like it was nerve-wracking going back and forth, but uh, you did get appointed, and we spoke the other day, um, and you told me a story, and I'd like to ask you about it again, um, where your entire family went up for your your hearings. Is that right?
1: Yes. Yeah, so um, you have the opportunity to invite whoever you'd like to your confirmation hearing, and so I flew up a few days before, and then my family joined me, and my parents came, my husband, my son and daughter, my sister and brother, some other family members. And at the beginning of the hearing, I stood up to introduce my family, and as I stood up, I glanced back, and my son, who was six years old, um, was sitting in his seat, and I had dressed him. He had his first little navy blazer and his first American flag tie, and, He was dutifully sitting straight up, bolt upright in his chair, but his mouth was wide open and he was sound asleep. And so when I went to introduce him to the senators in attendance, I told them that I had wanted to introduce him, but he had apparently fallen asleep. And the two senators who were uh, presiding at the time, Senator Biden and Senator DeWine, got into a debate over whose opening remarks had been so boring as to put my child to sleep. I have an opinion, but I
0: probably should keep it to myself. (laughs) Well, now that Senator Biden is now President Biden, I won't ask you about that. But so one of your duties as um, either the magistrate or as a district judge is to swear in new citizens who have gone through the naturalization process and you are known for your naturalization ceremonies one of which, and maybe more, are conducted uh, during the half-time, a halftime show for the Jacksonville Jaguars. How did you come up with that idea, and, and what motivated you to, to get that done?
1: It is absolutely my greatest privilege as a federal judge to swear in new American citizens. And really the most amazing moment of that experience, especially as the daughter of Cuban immigrants who are themselves naturalized citizens, is seeing the faces of these hardworking people at the moment that you declare that they are now American citizens. What erupts on their faces is just unbridled pride and hope and joy. And it is just the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And ever since I started doing that, I wanted to bring that moment to other people. I wanted other people to see that and to have that reminder of how very fortunate we are to be American citizens. And my husband and I have been season ticket holders for the Jaguars since the first season. And every year around Veterans Day, they have a salute to service event during halftime where they bring out about 150 people who have enlisted in the military and they do the oath of enlistment at halftime. And I would turn to him when they did it and say, why can't I do that with new citizens? I'd love for everybody to be able to see a naturalization ceremony. And it, it took me eight years, um, eight years of trying to get the right people to all say yes at the same time. I would I would get one group on board and then somebody else would say no. And, and anyway, it, it, it took eight years, but eventually the Jaguars said yes. And the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services said yes. And we put on our first um, halftime naturalization ceremony three years ago. I think we had 65 citizens at that time. And it was the the first halftime naturalization ceremony in the NFL. And it was really remarkable because it was at a time when the subject of immigration was a very controversial subject. And so we were not sure how people
0: were going to react. And, and how did they react? I mean, it seems like that would be important also for the community to see that.
1: The reaction was tremendous. Um, one thing that the Jaguars told us was they had more people stay in their seats than for halftime than they had witnessed. And not only did the fans stay and watch the naturalization ceremony, but they gave our new citizens a standing ovation. And when the the new citizens were returning to their seats after the halftime, they treated them like rock stars. They were were in the stands getting selfies with them. And and a lot of people commented afterwards about uh, what they learned. Um, I think I mentioned to you when we spoke that when we were preparing for the ceremony, it it was hard to take a, a naturalization ceremony and condense it to five minutes. And near the end, someone in trying to shorten it, took out two sentences that I had written in the script. And it was the two sentences that describe what these people have to do in order to become American citizens. And I called them and said, no, that the whole point of this ceremony, the whole point of bringing this out onto the field is for the community to learn how very hard these individuals have worked to become our fellow citizens, and to understand the journey that they've they've traveled. And so once I said that, they said, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And and we put it back in. Uh, But it was really important to include that civics education component to the ceremony.
0: And since you said you've been doing those at Jacksonville Jaguar Field uh, for for three years, I know that you've had some other interesting um, naturalization ceremonies, too, especially during COVID. Can you tell us about those?
1: Sure. Well, during COVID, before COVID, we had the opportunity to do one at the Cummer Museum because they had a piece of art that was on display from an up and coming immigrant artist. And the piece of art is actually about her American journey. Um, it's called I Refuse to Be Invisible. Uh, so we did one there and we've done them in other locations. But during COVID, We've been doing naturalization ceremonies in a parking garage out at the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services offices. We, we can't gather inside to do them, and so we do them about 10 people at a time in the parking garage. And as you can imagine, during July when we were doing them, it was a little toasty, uh, so it, it was more pleasant when we did them last month, but it's, it's great to be able to continue to do, the ser- to do those services.
0: So your other passion and the work that you have done is to provide civics education to demystify the judicial process, but also I know you're involved in teaching teachers on how to educate their students on government and the role of the judiciary. Tell us a little bit about that. There
1: are studies that come out all the time that tell us that the level of civics education in the American society Is uh, sadly abysmal. There was, for example, an Annenberg's Public Policy Center study in 2016 that said, or that found that only a quarter of adults in America could name the three branches of government. And that's sadly not unusual. And we have a democracy, but in order to sustain that democracy, people have to understand it. If, if You have to understand what you're fighting for. And there's just a lack of, of civics education. Uh, you know, Justice O'Connor started iCivics for that very reason. Um, justice Lewis has started justice teaching for that very reason. And so I've been hearing from lots of different sources about the need for civics education. And in my role as a federal judge, it gave me a platform to try and contribute to that. And so we started by bringing students into the courthouse to try to give them, for some of them, to try to give them a different view of the judicial system than the view that they were receiving either in their homes or their communities, Um, and for others just to educate them about the the judicial system. Over time, though, we we realized that there's only so much you can do with inviting one class in at a time, although we do bring fifth graders in to watch naturalization ceremonies, and they love them. So we started... A colleague of mine, Timothy Corrigan, and I set about to do a Teaching the Constitution Day for the teachers because we thought if we can get more information to the teachers, then they can get more information to more students. And we started doing that on an almost yearly basis where we would bring the teachers in and give them breakfast and give them lunch and give them, uh, say thank you to them because teachers get criticized a lot. It's not often that they get thanked. And so we we who see the difference that they make in people's lives every day wanted to express our thanks to them and also to give them some of the tools to help them increase this, the level of civics education that they could share without a lot of work from them. And so we would give them lesson plans and the like, and we've continued to do that. Although now some of the voluntary or associations have taken on the task of organizing the day and we just come in and teach for different sections, but It's, you know, a government for the people and by the people isn't an easy thing because people by their nature are going to have different opinions and different interests. And in the constitution, our framers tried to give us a way in order to accomplish that self-government, but it only works if our citizenry understands the way that it works and how the pieces fit together, when when we lose sight of that is when our democracy and our ability to self-govern is is tremendously weakened.
0: I know we didn't discuss this before when I called, but what is it that lawyers can do in Florida to help that cause, to help promote knowledge of the Constitution and the law?
1: Well, participating in, in, in the justice teaching Initiative is is a great opportunity. Going in and just spending a day in a classroom and answering questions and demystifying the process and explaining some of the misconceptions about the judicial process is helpful. Participating in any way in civics education uh, through the schools. And the schools are really open to having people come in or, or to having tools given to them. Just recently, we celebrated the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment. We brought the um, ABA's traveling exhibit for that to Jacksonville. Sadly, we had two weeks of activities planned for it, but they were in late March. So as you can imagine, none of the activities that we had planned for the event were able to occur because of COVID. We rescheduled it for September, thinking COVID would be over in September, and here we are the following year, and it isn't over. So we had the exhibit in on the first floor of the courthouse, uh, and so what we did was we invited lawyers to help us put together a virtual tour, uh, and several lawyers wrote a script and then played the roles of Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And they filmed this virtual tour that we have now distributed to the local high, the local schools, so they can show the virtual tour of the 19th Amendment exhibit, even though none of their students were able to come physically and walk through the exhibit. And that was just a, a matter of you know thinking a little bit outside the box of you know how, how do we get this information into people's hands?
0: Well, speaking of COVID and thinking outside the box, I know that you're involved in trying to get trials and hearings through at the federal level, what kind of steps have you taken or has the court taken to address COVID and trying to get legal proceedings started again? Sure. So I think I'll
1: I'll answer that by talking about what we're doing to try and get things started again, as opposed to all of the things that we've had to stop. But, you know, one of the biggest challenges we have because of COVID Is in person proceedings and in particular in person trials. We have only had a handful of trials um, in middle Florida since the beginning of the pandemic. And that poses a really significant challenge to the constitutional right to a speedy trial. You know, there are individuals who are sitting in detention facilities right now who were expected to go to trial in front of me last March. You know, And here we are 10 months later and they still haven't had a chance to go to trial. And so we started working immediately. Well, I won't say immediately. Once everybody kind of got their hands around the idea of this pandemic and the idea that it was gonna be with us for a while, we realized that we couldn't just sit back on our hands and wait. That you, you can't just tell people that they're never gonna get a trial. The Constitution requires the judiciary to make an effort to find a way to give somebody a safe trial. And so we started doing the things that courts all around the country are doing. You know, we ordered plexiglass dividers. We identified and implemented protocols for the courthouse. We purchased these headsets that allow the lawyer and the client to communicate with each other without having to sit, you know, one foot apart and whisper to each other and you know, now they can sit at opposite ends of the table and have a private communication which a lawyer has to be able to do in order to try a case with his client or her client and so we we put those in place they also allow you to have for example a sidebar conference without the jury hearing and we had hoped we started trials back up with those protocols in place and then the numbers the COVID level of positivity in the state of Florida after the holidays got to a level that we no longer felt it was safe to attempt to bring in juries. And so we've put a pause on that again, but we're hoping uh, very soon to be able to bring jurors back into the courthouse safely so that we can assure that people's speedy trial rights are honored.
0: I think we're all all hoping for that. I want to ask you one final question before we we sign off. Um, if you could give one piece of advice for a new attorney in your courtroom, what would it be?
1: I often have the um, opportunity to swear in new members of the Florida Bar, and when I get to do that, I, I there's one particular piece of advice that I do share with them. I tell them that as their careers unfold, they are going to face choices along the way, um, and they're going to have to decide what path they're going to follow. And that the choices that they make at those intersections really are going to define the reputation of the person that I'm swearing in that day. And I tell them that in my view, for whatever it's worth, there's, there's no one case, no one client, no one wow opportunity that is ever worth uh, jeopardizing their reputation. And I remind them that they, they only, really only have one name and it carries with it all of the decisions that they've made right and wrong. And they need to be very careful and very thoughtful about those decisions that they make.
0: Thank you, Judge Howard, for your time today. As a daughter of naturalized citizens, I appreciate the spotlight you've put on becoming an American. And I hope that you recover from your COVID and stay safe. Thank you. Thank you. That concludes our episode today of Never Contemplated. I'd like to thank Clay Shaw of the Florida Bar for his technical expertise, and Rebecca Bandy and Katie Young from the Henry Latimer Center for Professionalism for helping make this podcast a reality. For more information on the Cuban American Lawyers Initiative and other articles on Judge Howard's naturalization ceremonies, follow the links on the Never Contemplated podcast page on the Florida Bar website.